9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am at an undisclosed location, kind of locked in the location with a mad dog that's running around, so I don't know how long I'm going to make it through this. Uh, But uh, the good news is that we've got with us uh, David Sanger of the New York Times, freshly returned from Hanoi uh, in Vietnam. We have Rosa Brooks and uh, Ed Luce, both in Washington, D.C., I think, where no snow fell, uh, despite many alarms. Um, And uh, there's lots to talk about, but I thought we would start uh, with David's travelogue, uh, where he went, what he ate. Um, uh, uh, and, and maybe a little bit about the uh, nuclear summit that failed, apparently, according to the president, because of Michael Cohen. Uh, but why don't you give it? Why don't Why don't you give it a bit of an overview, David? Uh, well, this was a, a fascinating summit to cover. Um, the way that you know, um, news reporters, you know, always find more news covering train wrecks than they do, you know, tra- covering normal traffic patterns. We had every reason to believe uh, going in that nobody would send the president of the United States 8,000 miles to the other side of the world um, to go meet the leader of a poor and broken country and emerge from it with absolutely nothing. This wasn't like the first summit in Singapore where the news was just in the fact that the two men met, right? That you had this first meeting between a president of the United States and a leader of North Korea, and they seemed to get along so well that later they fell in love and exchanged letters with each other. And that when you went into the Oval Office, the president would like, you know, tell his assistants to bring the letters out. And this is, this is sort of like out. Romeo and Juliet, isn't it? it? It was kind of like Romeo and Juliet. Um, if, if if Romeo and Juliet got different kinds of haircuts, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, so uh, so there was every reason to believe that even while nobody expected that they would solve a North Korean nuclear problem that has defied solution for um, uh, across uh, five presidencies now, if you think that Young Beyond the major nuclear site was really started up under George H. W. Bush's time, and that Bill Clinton was the first one to to sort of truly engage the North Koreans in diplomacy on it. Uh, But we did think that there would be some progress toward it. And every other indication we had was that the administration had moved off of its line that um, you have to stop all activity and then uh, something good will happen for you. Um, And that there would be some sort of incremental progress. And the president said he was in no rush. And that made you think that he was signed on to an incremental approach. So then they arrived, uh, Kim in his train, um, which had to stop at the Chinese uh, uh, Vietnam border and had to drive down because they changed the rail, the, uh, rail gauges to avoid invasion in, in uh, Vietnam. Um, so he came down and uh, settled in to his hotel, which required throwing out the entire White House press corps, uh, which had been booked into the same hotel. And it turned out that 
dictators don't like living in the same hotel as the White House press corps. Who could who could blame them? Um, and uh, and President Trump uh, flew in, and uh, they all met at the Metropole Hotel, which is this French colonial gem built in 1901 that uh, is renowned for the bamboo bar, where no doubt you have. You would have found uh, David Rothkopf had he been with us. Um, and uh, it is also renowned for having a bomb shelter uh, underneath the courtyard where they used to herd guests. And you can now go down into it uh, during American bombing runs over over Hanoi. Um, and uh, the two men met uh, first for dinner there and then uh, came back again in the morning. And it became pretty clear to us by about mid-morning that something was going really wrong because we suddenly heard that the lunch they were going to have was going to be canceled. And the White House had, I don't know why you do this, turned out a uh, schedule that said signing ceremony, 2.05 p.m. Well, that suggested that there was going to be some agreement to sign. And suddenly the signing ceremony got got canceled. And so did the communique. And it became clear that the Americans had gone in and basically said, if you denuclearize everything now, just agree to do the whole enchilada, you'll have sanctions lifted. Well, that offer has been on the table to the North Koreans since Kim's grandfather was around. And Kim basically said no. And John Bolton smiled broadly and probably looked at the president and said, I told you this would fail, and they weren't really interested in denuclearization. So they all left on what the president said was perfectly friendly terms, um, but uh, without even agreeing on a freeze of production. So now the problem will get worse as everybody figures out what to do next. David, as uh, as the problem gets worse, um, uh, will Kim Jong Un try and push push the envelope on this? Will he try, having seen Trump, how easy Trump is to outfox? Will he try and push Trump to his limits? And if so, what? How, how much are we in danger of Trump snapping back to the to the fire and fury Trump? I, I think there is some danger of that as you get closer to the election. If the president feels as if uh, he is cornered in some way, I think there's every possibility that he might go back to kind of fire and fury sort of uh, discussion. Um, I don't think, uh, Kim said that he would not, or according to the president, uh, who had a, a news conference that was actually a very calm Donald Trump who answered questions sort of succinctly. And when I asked him about an additional enrichment facility outside Yongbyon that the United States has always treated as a great secret, started discussing it. Um, but uh, wait a minute, I, that doesn't sound possible. Was that a body double or a robot? Or it something? sure didn't seem like the same Donald Trump who showed up at CPAC on Saturday and talked for um, two hours and 20 minutes. I, you know, I'm trying to figure out why this was, David, that, that he, he was so calm. It was actually probably his best performance at a press conference since he came in as president. Um, and I think maybe it's because Secretary Pompeo was on the stage with him. Uh, um, maybe it was because he had just come out of this thing uh, recognizing that he was going home with nothing 
and wanted to try to spin it as this is fine, perfectly what we expected. I don't know what the answer was, but it was it was not the Donald Trump performance that you have seen in past press conferences. Uh, but to Ed's question, I don't think you'll see him set off uh, rocket launches or nuclear tests anytime soon. But I think you will see him ramp up production of nuclear material to make it, which he was going on anyway, to make it clear that while while we try to sit around and um, uh, congratulate ourselves for holding firm, their arsenal will grow. Um, I suppose to me the question the question that, that arises from that would be if Trump has you know already declared all of this has happened for the last year almost that Korea has agreed to denuclearize and said he's fallen in love. Um, and that they're great friends. And he said that at your press conference again on Thursday. Um, how easy it is for Trump to unwind that Romeo and Juliet embrace. Um, well, you may have noticed that Donald Trump's a man who's been married three times. <laughs> yeah, I have okay. noticed. And, and, and so, um, and, and, and I hear that there may have been a couple of relationships in between. Um, so, no. Uh, well, I, this is a shock to you, Rosa, and I, I didn't want to like go into detail when you're on. The well, let's there, let's let's leave the Jeffrey <laughs> let's leave the Jeffrey Epstein case out of this. For the okay. But um, the fact of the matter is, I think he is entirely capable of turning around and saying, "I thought I had a commitment from this man, and he welched on it, and so forth." I mean, you know, Michael Cohen was his uh, best friend, uh, fixer, and consigliere for 10 years, and they don't seem to be getting along so well right now. So, Rosa, as you as you look at all of this, do you have any questions for David or any reactions? Well, One of the things struck... Oh, go on. No, I, I do. I do have questions for, for David, um, in addition to wanting to know what he ate for dinner, because I understand he had excellent food. We um, did have excellent food. We, we dined very well and inexpensively, as one does in Vietnam. Um, well, I want, I, want, I want chapter and verse and recipes, please. But, but I also want to know, are we, is this still, are we still in a better position than we were a year ago um, or, or, or not? Uh, I mean, a year ago, many of us, myself included, were a little bit nervous that we were on the road to an open military conflict with North Korea. You and mean when was, you were shopping for silos for the to when I That kids. was when I was shopping for silos, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And with some degree of urgency. I mean, we were, we were pretty scared. And then we went um, quite quickly from uh, feeling like we might be on the verge of a uh, conflict which could kill hundreds of thousands of people with North Korea um, and that we needed to buy our silo right away. We went from that to Romeo and Juliet in love, um, having a, a grand old time, uh, you know, declaiming to one another. Um, and now, as, as David said, you know, now it's a little unclear where we are, but is it still better than things were a year ago? I mean, I mean, can we say that overall, we're we're in a better place than we were, or or does this seem like yet a, yet another dangerous moment? Um, I think we are in a better place than we were a year ago. If you consider that um, the overall threat from North Korea is some multiple of what their capability is and how hostile their intent is, 
And I don't believe at this point that their intent is very hostile on the nuclear side. Ask me about cyber, I will give you a different answer. But on the nuclear side, uh, I think that we're probably in better shape. However, their capability is growing. So if the intent ever changes, if the tone changes, if we get back to where we were in the summer of 2017, that we're going to be getting back there with a much larger arsenal. And I think that Kim has pretty well come to the conclusion that Donald Trump, like his immediate four predecessors, is not willing to take the military risk to stop the program. And that at most, what he was willing to give Trump during this meeting in Hanoi was a freeze on the production um, and, and a dismantlement of the Young Byun complex. Now, it was never quite clear whether he meant all of the complex or some of it. And Steve Began, the special envoy uh, uh, there, was could never quite get clarity out of um, his North Korean counterparts. Now, what would that have done? That would have um, taken away some of North Korea's main production capabilities. But Yongbyon is an aging, basically super fund site at this point, if North Korea had a super fund. And um, it is leaking radioactivity. It's old and dangerous buildings. It's about three square miles, 300 buildings. Um, a lot of them are in terrible shape. And I think that Kim was offering to give away something he realized had a limited lifespan. And as mm -hmm. soon as as soon as Trump and Pompeo and Bolton turned the conversation to all of the nuclear uh, facilities that are newer, that are outside of Yongbyon, including that second enrichment site that I asked the president about during the news conference, that's when things began to fall apart. He was not willing to give that up, at least yet. What do you what do you think that Kim thought was going to happen? I think that he believed that Donald Trump was in tough enough shape between the Mueller investigation, the Cohn testimony, um, his desire to to get a deal and his um, his assurances that he was in no rush, that he would take the young beyond deal. And I think maybe left to his own devices, he might have, so that he walked out with a signed agreement. And I think that Pompeo and Bolton, in various ways, threw their bodies in front of this and said, Mr. President, if you do that, everybody is going to write that you were taken for a ride, that you um, bought off, you were bought off with a, an old, decrepit facility and ignored the new ones. Rosa, hey. while, Dave, while David was at the Wild Orchid spa getting uh, um, a refreshing um, uh, body scrub or whatever he was doing there. Um, you you and I did an episode <laughs> of the... I thought that was in Florida or something. It, it is, but it has a branch in Hanoi. But you, you, you and I were doing a podcast with Joe Serencioni and Jeffrey Lewis, which was just dripping with optimism. And... We you were. Know, Jeff Jeffrey was very happy. Happens, he was a happy David, guy. This is what happens when you don't invite me onto the podcast. <laughs> Everybody I would have been gets the anti-optimist. <laughs> Everybody well, gets I, optimistic. I was counting on Rosa, you know, to, to 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 maintain her usual role. And I just wanted want to know: Do you have you know um, optimism, remorse now? No, I mean, I, I, I'm heartened, in fact, by the by David's reassuring me that although. 
this is not great, it's still better than it was a year ago. Um, uh, and the good news for for Jeffrey, who was on our last podcast and who's written a book uh, uh, positing a, a, a nuclear conflict with North Korea, the good news for Jeffrey is that his book can still sell copies because we, we can all hold on to our, our hopes for global catastrophe a little bit longer. Um, well, that's um, always the important thing, isn't that, it? <laughs> precisely. I mean, book sales really are the important thing here. Um, no, no, I, I'm, I am not particularly surprised that this fell apart, but I'm relieved that it didn't fall apart in a bad way as opposed to, you know, fading out with a bit of a whimper. Um, um, and, you know, and some time for everybody to think and calm down. What I do wonder um, is what this is going to mean for people like John Bolton um, and Mike Pompeo. Uh, One thing we know that Trump does not like is when other people turn out to be right. Um, And I wonder whether this, you know, with any other president, the fact that Bolton correctly, uh, correctly foresaw the likely North Korean response uh, and their limited willingness to to move forward with any other president that might raise Bolton's uh, credibility. With this president, I'm not sure that being right helps you. I think being right puts you in the doghouse. Um, so I'd be curious to know what the rest of you think about how this is going to change the dynamic between President Trump and his top advisors on national security issues. Is this going to give them more credibility or less with him? Ed, did you see the Bolton interview on Sunday? I read, uh, yeah, I read some transcripts. Yeah, because Bolton, you know, did not exactly support the president. You know, he he, he said, well, I'm, you know, this wasn't my approach. I'm just the advisor. He's the decision maker. And the president sort of said this, but you know, he, he didn't really actively defend him. I, I, at least that was the takeaway I had. I was wondering what your takeaway was. Yeah, and there was a particularly interesting form of words when he was asked about uh, Trump's uh, taking Kim at his word uh, that he wasn't personally involved in the Otto Warm beer. And he said, well, it's, it doesn't mean to say he agreed with Kim. You know, he was just literally doing that, taking him at his word, which uh, was a wonderfully postmodern um, uh, way of trying to wriggle out of that one. Look, I think Bolton is uh, accommodated himself to, self to many, many things that he wouldn't like a president he served to be doing, such as the almost full withdrawal from Syria, um, su- such as uh, the, the sort of broader disengagement with the Middle East. Um, because once you get close to power, once you get to the job you've been rooting for all your life, which is true in the case of Bolton, a national security advisor, then, you know, any any amount of um, defeat is worth the opportunity to push your agenda forward. And you could, if you look at a tally of what um, Bolton, you know, has has pushed for since um, he became national security advisor, there's quite a long list there, you know, dissing the United Nations all day long, which is his, um, uh, you know, preferred hobby. Um, is something that tr- the Trump administration has been doing, uh, pushing harder and harder on uh, a harder and harder line on Iran, is something that Bolton, you know, does before breakfast every morning. And so I think R- Bolton, you know, I agree with I agree with Rosa that um, this might endanger him. 
Um, but I think that Bolton's, um, you know, dressed up for this to get worse again in, 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 in the case of North Korea, uh, as it well could do. Um, if, you know, if there isn't a third summit and if having scheduled a third summit, um, there isn't the sort of preparatory work you need for a summit to, to succeed. So Bolton's going to stick around. It's, it, Trump might get bored of him. Um, uh, but um, Bolton's, Bolton's going to stay there come what may. David, yeah. when, when these kind of clusterfucks happen in diplomacy, particularly around summits, you almost immediately typically get some kind of, hey, David, come on over here. I want to tell you a little bit about what really happened. And this guy is the one who screwed up, but I didn't screw up. And, and you get this kind of backstory. Did it happen so quickly that you haven't really had a chance for people to throw each other under the bus yet? Or did that start in Hanoi? Well, you may have seen that in the Sunday New York Times, we put together this big reconstruction of what happened as best we could uh, could piece this together. What was interesting about doing the work on the reconstruction was the North Koreans talked. They had a post-midnight um, press conference. Well, they had a post-midnight uh, harangue in which they didn't take many questions. Um at their hotel. I mean, it's a rare, we, we, we had two remarkable things here. American reporters in the pool asked questions of uh, Kim Jong-un, who doesn't usually take questions. And the North Koreans basically briefed on their view of what uh, they had offered um, to try to put a different spin on it than the president had at this press conference. So I think we did begin to sort of sort out to the truth. And I think the remarkable point here, and it goes to Ed's point about about uh, Bolton, is we didn't see the U.S. use this moment to try to offer up some creative diplomacy in return for getting from the North Koreans what they needed, which was a big inventory of all of North Korea's um, missiles, warheads, production facilities, um, and then a timetable of how you're going to go deal with all of this. And if they had emerged with those two things, they could have come out and said, we're on the road. It's going to be rough along the way. I'm sure there are things that we think we've agreed to that the North Koreans will interpret differently because they always have, but we're making progress. And instead of that, they took this maximalist position of you have to agree on a definition of denuclearization that will turn over everything, stop knowing, or at least Bolton knowing and Pompeo knowing that there was no way the North Koreans were going to sign on to that because they had made no progress on that in the, in the uh, private conversations at the working level prior to that. And so it's almost as if this was set up to fail and to be able to allow the president's advisors to turn to him and say, see, sir, I told you they didn't actually believe in denuclearization. Ooh, devious, devious. Well, it's it, the, yeah, there are many levels of devious here. You know, you, before this all took place, we heard Steve Began is out over his skis. So, you know, this is, you know, somebody from the NSC or something, because he's planning on giving up too much. Was there any hint of that? You know, there wasn't. In fact, Began's team told the North Koreans to tell Kim Jong-un that if he walked in with a proposal just to close the Yongbyon facility, the president was going to reject it. Now, we don't know if the team actually said that to Kim Jong-un, because sometimes people don't like delivering bad news to Kim Jong-un, you know. 
It's like delivering bad news on deep state radio. You never know how people are going to react. Right? That's um, why we're here, David, is bad Oh, news. is that it? Okay. Um, uh, so uh, Kim went ahead and, uh, and, and made that proposal anyway. Now, it could be that you had, and I, I think this is a good deal of what went on, you had two leaders walk into the room, each convinced that their own persuasive personalities would make all the difference here that Kim believed that he could get from Trump what the working level would not give him. And that Trump believed that if he just made his maximalist, you need to give up all of your nukes because then we can build beautiful hotels on the beaches in North Korea, which the president actually talked about during the press conference, then um, that that would make the difference. Now, I'm not sure if anybody told the president that those beautiful beaches in North Korea are all mined, which, you know, I find usually that parents don't like to let their kids go play on mined beaches, you know, by and large. So I think it's resort possibilities are somewhat limited. Um, but uh, you, you all- obviously don't know the Trump kids very well. I suspect. When he was- <laughs> so um, be like. Don Jr., go play over there by that large, spiky <laughs> object. <laughs> so um, uh, you know, I think that there was a, a good deal of Donald Trump's projection here that Kim Jong-un was motivated by the same kind of um, issues of getting rich that have long motivated Donald Trump. And if you're Kim Jong-un and you've just arrived in your armored luxury train bringing your own steaks and your own food along the way and your own chefs, you're probably not thinking that working up greater prosperity is your number one priority. Rosa, you once a long time ago worked in that large five-sided building um, that's across the Potomac River. One of the few things that seems to have come out of this was the president reiterated that there will be no more high-level military exercises with the South Koreans, because as the president said, it costs millions of dollars, um, and he's been against it all along. Uh, That seems a little bit silly, although it is one of the strange concessions that came out of the North Koreans agreeing to nothing. Does it make a difference? Should the average person listening say, oh, that, who cares whether there's more um, uh, exercises here? Um, or, or I, yeah, no, it's it's a great question, and and I don't know the answer. I think whenever you have that kind of exercise, um, the good thing about them is the same thing as the bad thing about them. You know that they they have a signaling function, as much as anything else. I mean, obviously, to to some extent, the purpose of joint exercises really is training and preparation uh, for the hypothetical day when the two militaries might have to work together to face a genuine military threat, presumptively from North Korea. Um, but the, you know, uh, uh, the main reason that we do them is just to send a signal uh, to North Korea and to others who might be interested that says, we're serious about this stuff, we really will defend, we really can defend, we can work together, do not mess with us. Um, when you... And, and and the good thing is that sometimes that's the message that you ought to be sending. The bad thing is that sometimes that's a very provocative message. You know, when you're trying to work out a deal, when you're trying to say, hey, let's be friends, when you're trying to say, okay, we recognize that you have the means to 
cause problems, but maybe not the will to cause problems. And you want the the will to be, will not to cause problems to turn into a will to reach solutions. That that kind of exercises can be counterproductive. So I, you know, I I I think it is really hard to say how how it would play out if we were to continue those exercises right now. I think my instinct, and I am very far from a North Korea expert, is that it is probably not a bad thing in light of the current state of the relationship to at least put them on pause for the time being, um, that resuming them would be seen as a provocation. Uh, so, you know, w will it, other than the symbolic impact, does it matter terribly in terms of readiness I don't think so, at least if it's a, a temporary hiatus. I think I think obviously both the U.S. military and the South Korean military have long experience working very, very closely together. So I don't think there's any degradation of readiness that we need to be worried about uh, if they're put on hold. David, I understood that you have um, an appointment and must leave. Is there anything from your stay in Hanoi, um, you know, uh, the club hopping, uh, uh, sightseeing, <laughs> and, and so forth. Did you want to share with us before you go any highlights? Um, so, so uh, a few um, a, a few things. But one serious point before we get to the uh, travel log uh, part of this um, that uh, comes out of uh, Rose's point about the about the um, uh, doing the exercises and so forth. What I think our long-term worry here is is sort of twofold. Number one, a split with the South Koreans who desperately wanted this whole thing to work and who now have to decide, do they go ahead with their own sort of sanctions lifting kind of effort of uh, beginning trade again with the North Koreans, even though there's no deal out there? There's going to be huge pressure on them to do it. The second is we have completely revealed that while the president was glossing over the fact that these two sides defined denuclearization entirely differently, the president himself had to hand Kim Jong-un a piece of paper in English and in Korean that gave the president's view of what denuclearization meant. So here we were eight months after Singapore. At Singapore, the president told us you'll see real action within six months. And they're back to trying to argue about what denuclearization is. So I would say that's you're back at square one. Now, to the far more important point of uh, Hanoi, I've been going to Hanoi since I was um, stationed in Tokyo for the Times, uh, starting in the late 80s uh, and through the, the first half of the 90s. And at that time, it was an extremely sleepy city that, you know, you basically got around uh, on bicycles. Um, it is now um, a very vibrant place. It reminds me very much of going to Thailand in the in the 80s. It still has a wonderful feel of old Asia. It's got great food. Um, we basically dined on various forms of spring rolls over the course of uh, a week. Uh, there was a wonderful journalist dinner at a restaurant uh, that does serves Northern Highlands food that was... Um, delicious. I'm not sure we knew everything it was that we were ordering, but uh, everything was great. And dinner for six um, came to 60 bucks. So for people who are looking for another great place to go um, traveling, 
Uh, I can't recommend uh, Vietnam uh, highly enough. In fact, one of my own kids spent spent about a month there a, a year or two ago. And uh, it's just a, a great place to sort of capture what Asia once was uh, and won't be around for long. I would say that the same is true of Myanmar, but uh, Vietnam's a little bit, uh, uh, certainly a, uh, an authoritarian government, but a less obnoxious one than the one that's in Myanmar these days. I remember once going to a North Korean restaurant in Seoul, and um, it was it was so authentic that it had almost no food in it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, instead of tea, they offered us hot water, and it was one of these things where you sort of like you dip the the, the meat into boiling oil and then cook it yourself. Um, but they had run out of knives. So they gave us a pair of scissors to cut up the meat. Oh, that's great. Well, there are two North Korean restaurants in Hanoi, uh, but Kim did not stop at them. And we did uh, have a chance to discover that he had brought all of his food to the chef at the Metropole for uh, for the lunch with people inspecting it um, uh, with great care, uh, his own his own minders. So, you know, for for a guy who's managed to nerve gas his own half brother, he seems a little nervous about, you know, what it is uh, he's eating. I failed you, though, David. My, my real objective there was to get a little private time with Kim and urge him to come on Deep State Radio, because I thought that would be a really terrific podcast. You know, we could ask about his upbringing in Switzerland. We could ask about murdering his uncle. We could ask about... Oh, yeah, no, you know, he's... It, it, we're he's a great he's, interview. He's, yeah. He's, He's going to have his own podcast on the Deep State Radio Network uh, very that will, soon. That, that would it, be good. That would be it's good. It's going to be and called I, Pyongyang for Beautiful People. It's a <laughs> just just stay tuned for that. Well, David. Also, I wanted him and Rosa to get into a lengthy discussion about how you sort of um, decorate your uh, your silo because I'm sure he's got one. Well, they're they're pen pals. Anyway, thanks for joining us for this, and hopefully come back soon. And um, and um, Ed, let me go over to you while David um, exits his silo. One of the things that struck me in all of this was, doesn't all this increase the likelihood that there's a deal with China real quickly? Because if the China deal went off the tracks, the president would be, he would have no place to go. And so you start hearing these rumblings, and I these things have got to be sort of connected at some level, at least in the minds of the Chinese, no? Yeah, look, I think it, it increases the pressure on Trump to, to do a deal. Paradoxically, it also increases the pressure on Xi Jinping, who's desperate for this, not only um, to end, but also not to escalate, um, uh, to, um, to reach a deal too, because Trump has demonstrated he can walk away. Um, so I think both contribute to the likelihood that um, if there's a Mar-a-Lago meeting between Trump and Xi later this month, um, that that will produce some kind of a, a trade agreement between China and America, um, which will uh, which will be more apparent than real. I mean, it will involve a sort of prolonged ceasefire. The escalation will be off the table. Probably most of the tariffs will be, and there will be fairly credible looking Chinese pledges 
um, you know, to stop looting technology investors in um, in China, but ones that will be unenforceable ultimately. Um, so I think Trump will, you know, get initial applause from that. Um, uh, if, if, if indeed that happens, which I expect it probably will. He'll get initial applause from it, but the closer we look, the more we'll realize that um, this is what, what I wrote last week. This is the grand old Duke of York uh, strategy. You march your men to the top of the hill only to march them down again. Now, Trump, Trump, is, tr tr Trump has been a lot of sound and fury on what is ultimately going to be a big purchasing deal for more American soybeans and other commodities. Well, there's something else for you to be optimistic about, Rosa. You know, if he blows all the deals, something, you know, it increases pressure for him to get one to work. But I thought this would be a good opportunity for you to wrap up this episode uh, with a few words on what this kind of diplomacy does for U.S. standing in the world more broadly. <laughs> it could be worse, David. It could be worse. Um, I mean, I think that I, I don't think it hurts us. Um, maybe I'm I'm still wearing the tiara of optimism from last week, I guess. But but I think well, you know, Corey's in Australia, and so she's lent it to you. I know she's lent it to me. I, I have to wear it on her behalf for for the time being. I, I think that. All things considered, this could have gone so much more badly. Um, I don't think it wasn't a complete humiliation. It was a failure to make further progress, but nobody nobody behaved uh, absurdly. Uh, so I think we get some points for for trying and for managing for at least a few short days to act sort of like a normal country. Um, so if anything, I think that this may have ever so slightly helped um, in terms of U.S. image. You know, not very much, because obviously we, we can't come back having claimed some, you know, brilliant negotiating success. But at least we, at least we didn't start a war, and at least uh, our president didn't say anything that makes him look uh, uh, more egregiously foolish or criminal than he already looks. Wow. That's really just, Ed, you know, we've come apparently to the place in U.S. foreign policy where um, if the president does not incinerate the world, he gets a participation trophy. Yeah. He, he, he does indeed. Um, I, I think there's one thing he could have done to improve the temper of North Korea's leader, which is he could have introduced him to vaping. As you know, he's the only, he's the only world leader who openly smokes cigarettes. Um, I could advise him on this transition. It's it's a good one. Wow, that's would and you go it's to? A, it's a bit like moving from nuclear weapons to conventional ones. They're a completely different kind of weapon: uh, a cigarette and and a jewel. Oh my God! <laughs> I, I, no, this is why people tune into Deep State Radio because they get insights, new ideas, like they will get no place else. Well, folks, you know, tune in again later this week. You know, uh, Rosa and Ed will be back, and we'll be talking about literally everything in the world. In the interim, of course, you can go to deepstateradionetwork.com. You can listen to other shows that we've got, like Washington for Beautiful People uh, or National Security Magazine. You can sign up. I mean, it would be nice. It's like we're here every week. We're talking. We're giving you insights. David's telling you where to get your food in Hanoi. Um, and and so forth. But are you signing up yet? Have you signed up? Have you become a member? 
no, that's fine. We don't, it's okay. You know, just, just ignore us. Don't do it. It's doesn't, doesn't hurt a bit. Rosa doesn't, doesn't make you feel bad at all that all these people, that's many of them do not sign up to become members. Does it? Dead silence from Rosa. She just, I've, I've been crying a lot lately, David, and it, it's hard to overcome that, but but don't feel bad. Nobody should feel bad about that. Yeah, don't feel bad about Rosa sitting there all alone with her dog at her feet, both of them weeping. Um, Ed in a cloud of vape smoke with tears streaming down his cheek. Um, we, you know, but we won't guilt you into do it. Just just do it, okay? And come back next week. I mean, later this week for another episode of Deep State Radio. Thanks, Rosa. Thank you, David. Thank you, Ed. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.